You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Thank you very much for joining us. The village of Cash Creek has been under a state of emergency for a week now, and the hot weather in the forecast is just adding a new threat. More than 120 properties have now been ordered evacuated, with approximately 300 residents told to go to Kamloops for access to emergency services. Catherine Urquhart has the latest. More than 100 mobile homes are within centimeters of being flooded by the fast-rising Bonaparte River. Sandbags surround many residences, but they're precariously close to the edge. About 200 people have been evacuated from Sage and Sands. RCMP guys came to the door and said, you guys got to go. It's getting closer. The river keeps eating away at the bank a little bit. So now it's uh, probably like within the inch of the back of the trailer. We had to evacuate right away because of the, the banks and river coming up really, really high. Another 20 homes are also part of the evacuation order. An emergency centre is being set up in Kamloops about an hour away. And they do an interview with a volunteer and we assess their needs and then uh, the volunteers will approve their expenses that way. Last week, a torrent of water and mud from Cache Creek flowed through the village, damaging the fire hall, Tumbleweed Motel and other businesses. Cleanup from that continues as firefighters shovel thick layers of dirt that flowed into the building. Cash Creech has gone down, obviously. Fire hall's safe for now, but the Bonaparte is rising. Now this community is bracing for more flooding, this time from the Bonaparte River. As of yesterday, was running at 100-year uh, levels uh, as far as its flow went. We're anticipating 34-degree temperatures over the next couple of days and there's still a significant snowpack that feeds the Bonaparte River. Cash Creek's mayor says he's hoping for cooler weather so the snowmelt slows and water levels subside. But for now, at least, that's highly unlikely. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A warning today about the heat wave that's about to hit B.C. Temperatures could top 30 degrees this weekend and bring with it the risk of more fires and floods. In Matagahi now with what provincial officials are keeping a close eye on. The week has been calm and relatively stable for the province's overall flood forecast. But the upcoming heat wave expected throughout B.C., is expected to disrupt at all. Given us a little bit of time to create some room in the rivers and sort of get ourselves ready for um, what's coming and certainly uh, focusing, starting to shift that focus onto this building uh, heat that's coming, uh, high pressure ridge and expected to have you know extremely hot temperatures. The BC River Forecast Centre is keeping a close eye on the upcoming heat and specifically how much snow it will melt. This heat event is very much going to start to really uh, bring the, the water from, from that snow in the upper, upper elevations down into the rivers. The rivers being watched closely include those fed into by the snow in upper elevation. At this time, the elevated temperatures that we're expecting over the next week or so, um, the primary concern about them is its impact to flooding and wildfire. But in some communities, they may experience temperatures that warrant the opening of cooling centres. The BC Wildfire Service classifies this as a typical start to the fire season aligned with its 20-year average. There are currently 43 active wildfires in the province, and at this juncture, it's uncommon for natural ignition 
meaning the majority of those fires are caused by human activity. For this reason, the BC Wildfire Service moved to a Category 2 open fire ban across the province's Caribou and Prince George region. In Matagahi, Global News. And right on cue, senior meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with the latest on a special weather statement related to the heat. Christy. Chris, it's the entire province of uh, B.C., basically, and Alberta. And we even have air quality advisories in place because of all of the fires. This is the type of scene that you would get in July and August, not in early May. So this is a substantial uh, scenario that we're dealing with, uh, potentially a historic heat wave. So we're talking about temperatures beginning over the weekend and then into early next week, away from the water for the south coast, 34. One of the hottest areas will be the Thompson-Nicola area, potentially 36, maybe even a little hotter than that. Central Interior, Okanagan, and the Kootenai region up to 33 degrees. Uh, now, this is not like the heat that we saw with the heat dome in 2021. Nonetheless, this type of heat is definitely something that you need to uh, take seriously and find some ways to cool yourself down. All right, thanks, Christy, and we'll check in a little later with the extended forecast. Another debate over policing in Metro Vancouver, this time between the two Langleys. Janet Brown tells us why the township wants to part ways with the city. The township of Langley is growing at such a faster rate than the city of Langley, and we're so much larger. The Langley township mayor says it is not fair for taxpayers to subsidize policing in another community, that being Langley City, and he wants to see the shared RCMP service become two detachments. So the city is 10 square kilometers, the township of Langley is 310 square kilometers. We're so much geographically larger. Our population is five times the city of Langley. We're growing at a much faster rate. Woodward says the township is paying more than its fair share for officers policing both communities. We've added 33 to one in terms of the city of Langley. We're committing to fund 10 more over the next four years. Uh, we are really trying to address this issue, but we don't want to see them serving another municipality. What does Langley City's mayor think of a separate force? I know that that's a long, complicated, drawn-out process that will take years and years to complete. We've seen that with Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge, where I think they're in year six. And of course, we're all familiar with what's happening with Surrey Police Service and RCMP right now. He says a new contract may be a better solution. If the township believes that the agreement for policing in Langley is not equitable, I 100% commit to sitting down at the table with Mayor Woodward and hammering out a new contract for Langley integrated policing that is fair for both municipalities. And with so many different RCMP and municipal police detachments across Metro Vancouver, he has asked about an idea that's been kicked around for some time, a regional police force. I think that's really a, a worthwhile conversation on the policing model in BC. That's one I think we need to have. Before a split would be allowed, the provincial government would have to be satisfied when it comes to public safety in both communities. Janet Brown, Global News. And with the future of policing in some parts of B.C. up in the air, there are renewed calls for regional police forces in the most populated areas of the province. As Richard Zisman reports, some experts say it would be a solution to a lot of problems. They are borders criminals ignore. And with the debate around policing in Surrey and now Langley, calls are intensifying to drop municipal police forces and replace them with regional ones. It's made a, a simmering situation and bringing it to a boil. And I think that uh, really, again, we call on this provincial government to take a leadership role. 
Last year, an all-party legislative committee recommended scrapping the current policing model, establishing police forces in Metro Vancouver and the capital region, and a provincial force in the rest of the province. But even now, very little has been done to lay the foundation for those changes. If government were to go down that road, it would obviously have to take place with a lot of uh, discussion with local government. Those discussions haven't even started, even though many municipalities support the idea of a change. We need to have an understanding from a policy perspective within the ministry of how something like that uh, would work, because it, 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 is, it, it would be very complicated. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth says he believes a change of this magnitude would take multiple legislatures or even multiple governments. But some experts contend a change to regional policing would actually only take a few years. We have this big gaping wound in policing here in British Columbia and we keep taking band-aid approaches to that wound. The pain of those wounds felt most by victims in cases where police forces failed to share files something a switch to regional forces could change. We would look at uh, ensuring that there's more efficiencies, that we would have that effectiveness in place for all the British Columbia. And while the province is still considering what to do, it acknowledges policing improvements are far more complex than a switch of the names on the side of a police vehicle. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, it's been three days since a forensic audit into BC housing was released, exposing shocking examples of financial mismanagement and conflict of interest. Former BC Housing CEO Shane Ramsey is married to Janice Abbott, the CEO of the organization's largest housing partner, Atira. So far, neither one has been available to answer questions. And as Krista Dow reports, experts warn that that's a situation that erodes public trust. Oh, hi there, calling from Global BC. Is Janice Abbott available? Not in at the moment. It has been three days since a bombshell report of mismanagement and a conflict of interest at BC Housing and its dealing with Atira. And there's been no sign of Atira CEO Janice Abbott. Hi, we sent multiple emails, phone calls and text messages directly to reach Abbott. No response. A business lawyer calls the audit troubling and a failure of governance. The violations of conflict of interest really, you know, enabled Atira to access unfairly and disproportionately uh, the public purse. The forensic investigation focused on former BC Housing CEO Shane Ramsey and Atira CEO Janice Abbott. The two are married. The report highlighted missing financial information, deleted text messages and altered meeting minutes. Carol Liao says this shakes public confidence. Atira has been under scrutiny for years uh, regarding the conditions of the buildings that they run, uh, reports of poor living conditions and safety concerns. You know, nothing seemed to slow them down and, you know, the government money also just kept funneling in. Last year, Atira received $74 million from BC Housing. Its management of SROs questionable. Tenants often complained about unsafe living conditions and problems in the buildings like this elevator that was broken for nine months. No answer at a property registered to Abbott and Ramsey. Atira's board of directors is on the defense, saying it remains confident that its CEO and senior management will guide the organization through these challenges. But BC's housing minister not convinced. 
the CEO says she hasn't even read it. Um, it, uh, it shows uh, a level of um, lack of concern for the information that's been provided. Atira's board stating executive staff did not benefit financially by taking on more buildings. And that sounds a bit disingenuous to me. $74 million uh, annually is a lot of money. Um, and certainly uh, that cash flowing in benefits the power of those from within. For now, any new funding frozen as the province reviews Atira's financial transactions. Chris Tadeo, Global News. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. Keith, uh, we're learning there are some surprising connections as well between Atira and some local politicians. Yeah, very interesting. So Alva Kim is the chair of the board at Atira. She runs Anthem Properties. That's where Kevin Falcon, the BC United leader, worked for a number of years after he left politics the first time. Another board member at Atira is Miriam Sabrino. Her husband is BC Government Forest Minister Bruce Ralston. That particular relationship came up during question period today. They then, much to our surprise, as we peel back the onion, Mr. Speaker, find out that the Forest Minister's spouse is on the board of Atira as well. Talk about friends and insiders at a time that this Premier won't explain how the tripling of funds to an agency under non-stop bad reports is being looked at. The Minister of Forests uh, has acted with great integrity in this entire process. He has himself recused himself from any conversation that pertains to uh, Tara, Honourable Speaker. Uh, not only has he done that, uh, he hasn't spoken to me about a single issue since this whole thing has come forward. As Minister Kalon said, uh, uh, Force Minister Bruce Ralston did release a statement earlier today saying he has had absolutely no involvement in any conversation or decision-making involving that here since he became uh, minister. So again, I've known Bruce Ralston a long time. I take him at his word. There's no conflict here. He's following the rules. But just another interesting tidbit for this fascinating story. And there are many of them. Thanks very much, Keith. Well, Vancouver's empty homes tax will stay at 3%. The former city council had voted to raise the tax to 5% of a vacant property's value. A day that was cancelled by the current council. City staff were worried the higher rate could spark more tax evasion and require more resources to ensure compliance. In the future, council will consider a graduated tax rate, meaning the tax would go up the longer a property sits empty. Well, it's one of the most important documents you'll ever carry, and today big changes to the Canadian passport. What's new and what makes it better, even if not everyone agrees? Next on the News Hour. Remember the story of the young boy with autism who had only one classmate come to his birthday party? Well, the story gets a lot better now that he's a year older. That's later. Plus. This is going to be the most innovative finger-fighting series that has ever existed. Idle hands turn into a crazy movie idea. The two BC creators behind a major internet hit. Later. Right now, though, big changes coming for anyone who carries a Canadian passport. First of all, starting this fall, you'll be able to renew it online. Our passports are also getting a major facelift with new art and security features. But as Grace Key reports, not everyone is happy with some of the changes. 
Canadian passports are getting a new look and enhanced security features, including laser-engraved personal information on polycarbonate material. Some colors, images, and letters appear and disappear depending on the angle. And seasonal art changes under ultraviolet light. Also coming this fall, you'll be able to renew your passport online. So adding this additional tool uh, means that for people who are just doing a simple renewal, of a valid passport, uh, it will be a lot quicker and easier to process. This July is the one-year anniversary of the first 10-year passport application, so a higher number of renewals is expected. People renewing passports at Vancouver Sinclair Centre reacted to the news. Doing your passport online would be just so much simpler. Instead of having to like fill out a form, come here for like an hour and a half. If it's anything like the CRA online, it's going to be a nightmare. I'm from Melbourne and we do our passport renewals online. Um, yeah, it's really easy. So you used to have to go into the post office and get a professional photo taken, um, but now you can literally just take a selfie on your phone. What you won't find on the new passports? An image of Terry Fox on his Marathon of Hope. Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West promptly tweeted, I'm the mayor of Terry Fox's hometown. Whoever made the decision to remove Terry Fox from Canadian passports needs to give their head a shake. Our country needs more Terry Fox, not less. Instead, the new passports will highlight Canada's natural beauty throughout the four seasons. And there is a reason for an entirely new theme. We did want to go for uh, a completely new design in part to protect the security features. If you maintain elements that may have existed in the previous design, it becomes easier to counterfeit uh, the Canadian passport, which is something we want to protect against. Current passports are still good until they expire. The new passports will start rolling out later this summer. Grace Key, Global News. And looking at the federal government's numbers for the past year, an average of 257,000 passport applications were being processed each month. But those numbers shot up in the new year with more than 370,000 in January, 337,000 in February, and more than 400,000 in March. Despite the volume and the Peace Act strike, the government says wait times are back to pre-pandemic norms, 10 days for in-person applications and 20 days by mail. Up ahead, new plans for Old Town. So long as there's uh, ongoing consultation and, and involvement of First Nations, I think it's really important. How the Royal BC Museum is more accurately depicting BC's history. Also ahead, Kelowna wrestles with its own tent encampment, now too big to ignore. Good evening and good news. This is all that's left of that overturned semi in Delta on the Highway 17A on-ramp to northbound Highway 99. It's all off to the side and the on-ramp has been reopened. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 17A and Highway 99. One man has been arrested in the alleged sexual assault of a youth at or around the East Newton Gurdwara in Surrey. RCMP say the 58-year-old suspect is an employee of the Gurdwara on the corner of 152nd and 68th. Officers received a report about the incident involving a 15-year-old girl last Thursday, May 4th, and arrested the suspect the next day. He has been released under the condition that he has no contact with the victim. He also can't be alone with anyone under 16 years old. No charges have been laid yet, and police are asking anyone who was at the Gurdwara between 6.30 and 8.30 the morning of May 4th to give them a call. 
Vancouver police have now identified and arrested a suspect in a string of groping attacks targeting women. Police say they received a tip after images of the man were released yesterday and arrested him this morning at an East Vancouver home. Between April 27th and 29th, four women reported being attacked. All of the grope gropings happened in the area around BC Place and Rogers Arena, and they all occurred after dark. The suspect has not yet been charged. He's being held in police custody. A warning now about our next story. Some of the content might be disturbing. It was an intense day in court today at the trial of the man accused of first-degree murder in the 2017 death of a Burnaby teenager. As Romina Dea reports, the jury was shown pictures of the scene and heard more questions about another person allegedly in the area at the time. Who was the homeless man speaking to police in the dark in Burnaby Central Park at the scene where the teenager's body was found almost six years ago? When defense counsel attempted to probe RCMP constable Ian Robertson further about the homeless man and how he was in the scene perimeter, Kevin McCullough's line of questioning was shut down by the judge. Another Mountie, also on the stand Wednesday morning, Sergeant Michael Ermson told the jury the teen's T-shirt was up, her breast exposed, shorts and underwear tangled like a pretzel on one side. Ermson said he believed the teen had been murdered and sexually assaulted, not consensual sex in his opinion. But how? No obvious cause of death was observed. Defense questioning if the officer noticed all the condom wrappers around the scene. Again, defense shut down, the judge not allowing the question. Crown's theory, the accused, Ibrahim Ali, strangled the girl to death in the course of sexually assaulting her. Ali's DNA found inside the teen, says Crown. Ali has told the jury he did not kill the teen. He has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. A heavy afternoon after Crown prosecutor Isabel Keeley led the jury through a series of photographs, including pictures of the teen's half-naked body in the forest. Forensic identification specialist Corporal Dominic Toa testified there were injuries to the girl's knees and finger, but no fluids were detected by the forensic light source. It would glow if there was saliva or semen. Corporal Toa has yet to be cross-examined by defense. The trial continues Thursday. Romina Dea, Global News. Growing concerns in Kelowna about the dramatic increase in the size of the city's designated site for outdoor sheltering. Some estimate there are two to three times the number of people living at the site than there were during the winter. The local gospel mission says what's most concerning is the number of people who are experiencing homelessness for the first time. We have people who are precariously housed who are for the first time finding themselves without housing and have to access either shelters or find themselves tenting outside or living in their cars. We're sending supportive housing units to public hearing and people are complaining non-stop about supportive housing and then they're complaining about this. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Stop complaining about everything and start supporting housing. If you want this gone, support housing. The Kelowna Gospel Mission says some of the new faces are people who were moved off Hastings Street in Vancouver and decided to move to a different city altogether. Charting a new future for the Royal BC Museum. What to expect from the new exhibit when Old Town reopens later on the news hour. And Uber expansion. The major BC cities finally getting the ride-hailing service.
good evening and good news. Final clearing stages of a truck that dumped a load of gravel here in Steveston on the Steves or on Richmond on the Steveston Highway on ramp to southbound Highway 99. Just some debris left over, and that on ramp has been reopened. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball jackpot is $22 million plus the classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 99 and Steveston Highway in Richmond. More than three years after ride-hailing service Uber arrived in Metro Vancouver, the app is now approved for use in Victoria and Kelowna. A launch date hasn't been set yet, but the news of more competition and more options to get a ride is welcome news for tourism officials in Victoria. Paul Nursey with Destination Greater Victoria says it's important for shift workers to have another option when the buses stop running and for people to have additional options to get to and from the Victoria International Airport. International travelers and particularly conference delegates. You know, we are, you know, a globally ranked tourism city, number two small city in the world by continent travelers. And for global travelers to come here, be expected to have a globe brand app like they do everywhere else for a ride hailing service and to not have it is frankly very embarrassing for our city and it makes us look backwards. Uber says drivers who sign up in Victoria and Kelowna will be eligible for a $1,000 bonus if they complete 20 rideshare trips within the first 14 days. One of the more popular exhibits at the Royal BC Museum is set to reopen this summer with some changes. Old Town will be welcoming visitors once again after being shut down more than a year ago to re-examine how the display should more accurately depict colonization. Kylie Stanton shows the plan moving forward. So we're going to take this space and make it much more close to home. It went from out with the old, in with the new, to not exactly reopening, but instead... It's really a reimagining exercise. Work is underway here at the Royal BC Museum's Old Town Gallery, set to welcome visitors once again at the end of July. There will be new narrative to really encourage the public to think differently about how we've traditionally thought about the storefronts in Old Town. It's the latest development in the institution's journey to navigate where it's been and where it's going. In December of 2021, this meant the closure of the Old Town exhibit and the first People's Gallery on the third floor, all in the name of decolonization. But the backlash was swift and the decision was reconsidered. I've had hundreds of emails. Um, people have said that they wouldn't renew their memberships until that is reopened. And so I think we're going to see a huge bump. And that's a win now being celebrated by the business and tourism sectors. It means that it's another experience for visitors to Victoria. People had been missing the RBCM and that whole experience. So having this part of it back is a really good thing. We're going to be able to say proactively that there's some stability with regards to um, the Royal BC Museum. And that's really important, an important message for us to convey. This is just the first phase of a multi-year project to transform the museum. The goal is to provide visitors with context, giving background and historical references throughout the gallery. First Nations leaders say they expect that to include the role of Indigenous people and the issues they faced. Knowing full well that during this time, genocidal policies were imposed on Indigenous peoples and the museum needs to tell the story right. Engagement sessions with Indigenous communities are ongoing, but the museum says will continue to inform the path forward. So we're inviting First Nations representatives into the museum to be there in the space, to look at it with us and work with us to get it 
Right. And in this case, what's old is truly new again. Kylie Stanton, Global News. And here's some history for you. The museum was founded in 1886 and housed in a single room in the Capitol building. In 1963, Premier W.A.C. Bennett announced plans to build a new museum as a Canadian centennial project. Three years later, Her Majesty the Queen Mother dedicated the cornerstone for the current museum exhibits building. The second museum building, the Fannin Tower, was completed back in 1969. BC Cancer is launching a public awareness campaign on the link between alcohol consumption and cancer. The province-wide health initiative is meant to help British Columbians make informed decisions about drinking alcohol. BC Cancer says there is strong evidence that drinking alcohol increases the risk of developing at least seven types of cancer, including breast, colon, rectal, liver, esophagus, larynx, mouth and throat cancers. The agency also says alcohol contributes to 7,000 cancer cases in Canada per year. We're not trying to sort of shame anybody. Really, we want this to be a positive campaign that, you know, the, the new low-risk drinking guidelines are um, trying to stick to one or two drinks per week. But if you go more than that, that's okay. What we're really trying to say is any little bit that you can reduce counts. If you are looking to drink less, the campaign offers some tips and tricks like replacing a glass of wine at dinner with sparkling water. Coming up, a boy gets a much better birthday. When my tweet hit the media stream last year, it hit like over a million people. The father of a child with autism planned something much bigger after no one showed up last year. Plus, our first ever TikTok actually garnered over 21 million views. You gotta hand it to these BC filmmakers lighting up social media with their unusual finger move movies. It was a story that touched a lot of people. Last year, only one person showed up to Max's sixth birthday party. This year, there's a different problem. Too many guests. It's a birthday bash everyone will remember, this time for a different reason. As Jennifer Palma tells us, it turns out the soon-to-be seven-year-old won't be the only star of the show. After what happened last year, I mean, obviously it was a bit of an um, emotional time when he had the empty birthday. Who can forget the heartbreaking tweet from David Chen, a father who just wanted his young son, Max, who lives with autism, to have a fun birthday, a play place ready for celebrating, but with only one of the invitees showing up. You know, when my tweet hit the media stream last year, it hit like over a million people. I had hundreds of people respond that they suffered the same thing. And that was actually more heartbreaking. In the end, Max's sixth birthday was celebrated in a big way. But now as he turns seven in the coming weeks, the family wants everyone to feel included and they have big plans to give back. Not only to have his classmates come in and celebrate and have this group dynamic where everybody can be special, but it was an opportunity for his classmates to also see what neurodiversity is like and actually what philanthropy is like. David reached out to Autism BC for help inviting families to the May 19th party at 365 Fun Days in Richmond. In less than an hour, 100 people signed up with a wait list of another 100 wanting to attend a safe space where they'll feel understood. Max's story is not one that is rare. I feel like lots of times there are children who are excluded from social events or 
activities because they are different or they are not understood by their their peers. David says he's never pointed a finger of blame, just that he wants inclusion and understanding of neurodiverse people, even developing a party 101 list on how to make birthdays special for everyone. We just want every kid to be able to celebrate their birthday. You know, I think every kid remembers the big birthday parties they had when they're children. And that's why parents want to give that to their children too. That's what this is about. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Happy birthday, Max. Yes, early birthday, but hey, we can celebrate for yeah. a few more days. Uh, let's check in with Christy now. A lot of people keep an eye on, on the weather, whether you're worried about floods or fires. Floods, fires, and even health, uh, heat-related um, health. So here's a quick look. I thought I'd give you some perspective. So this isn't like the heat wave we saw in uh, 2021 in June. Keep in mind, it's May. So we have had May heat waves in the past. Here's a few of them, but particularly 1983, I wanted to point out. This data collected by Thierry Goose, by the way. Thank you so much, Thierry. He's a, an amateur climatologist, climatologist, an exceptional one. So in 1983, and this was the heat wave that occurred sort of in late May, Boston Bar hit 40.5 degrees, and that was an all-time record for the month. We're much earlier in May in terms of our heat waves, so we won't see those sort of 40-degree temperatures. Our nights are a little bit longer. Two weeks sort of uh, difference makes a lot, uh, makes a big difference at this time of year. Uh, so the, our heat wave was in earlier May. Uh, if it had been sort of back at, like it was in 1983, sort of late May, we could have been hitting those 40-degree marks, but we're not expecting that, thankfully. Uh, nonetheless, we are expecting the potential for daily heat records. Here's a look at the numbers that we're expecting again uh, with the peak of the heat. It will start to develop sort of Thursday and Friday, peak of the heat happening over the weekend. There are some computer models that will say it will cool on Wednesday, but some won't. So we're talking about five to seven days and we'll keep you up to date as to how long. Reminder though, never leave children or pets inside of a car unattended, especially with this type of heat. The temperature soar inside of a car. Here's a look at tomorrow. We'll see actually some rain across the north coast. That's one area that won't be hot. But the, be the beginnings of the heat will occur tomorrow and then Friday, particularly with the peak of the heat over the weekend. For Metro Vancouver, areas away from the water could reach 34 degrees on Sunday, a hot Mother's Day indeed. So find some ways to keep yourself and your loved ones cool this Mother's Day. And tonight's center windows, weather window coming to you from uh, the Egmont area on the Sunshine Coast. This great shot of the sunset. Thanks to Brent for that one, Chris. Back and so back to you. Lovely. Thank you, Christy. Well, some familiar faces from the B.C. legislature looked a lot messier than usual for a very good cause. I've been waiting years for this. <laughs> so satisfying. Members of the legislative press gallery, including Vancouver Sun columnist Vaughn Palmer and our own Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman, took pies to the face from the elected representatives they normally report on. Those MLAs paid $100 for each pie with all the money going to the BC Cancer Foundation's Tour de Cure. Okay, <laughs> there must have been multiple pies that we just didn't see on camera. I think, I think so. Okay. Hey, we also want to mention very quickly, thank you to everybody who came out and supported McHappy Day today. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were serving the food and... Yeah, for Ronald McDonald House, and we got to eat the food as well. It was so, great. Perfect. And thanks to the staff for helping us out. What else have we got? Well, we're going to learn today about the uh, golf club that spawned Nick Taylor and Adam Hadwin, among other great players. If you can score at Ledgeview, you can go and play any other golf course because you have that, that short game prowess. 
Yes, Ledgeview in Abbotsford has been a course of champions for a long time. Also tonight. You might have seen this finger fighting video. Five Fingers of Fury, the latest installment from BC filmmakers lighting up social media. All right, Squire's ready to go. I am indeed. The uh, Vancouver Whitecaps are the defending Canadian champions in soccer, and the path to reaching the final again to try and win that trophy will not include the other two MLS teams. So not to denigrate the other clubs on their side of the draw, like Pacific FC and uh, TSS Rovers, the uh, Caps should push through but their on-again, off-again goal-scoring problems could very well be an Achilles heel. And today they dressed the lineup without some of their big-name guys. They had some, but not all of them. There's Ryan Raposo. Vancouver taking on York United. And early on, this looks like Whitecap soccer. Great chances, but not putting him in the net. Simon Betcher, nope, not a great shot. Diver Caicedo, his header, flat out misses the net. Ugh, Vanny can't stand it. Still in the first half. Gold gets two shots at this. The second one hits the net right at the goalie. So no scoring in the first half. Vancouver was all over York United. If you can't score yourself, get the other team to score on themselves. That's how the first goal goes in. Russell Tybert's shot hits the bar and goes off the back of Elijah Atakube, and that gives Vancouver the 1-0 lead, and that seems to break the ice, knock down the wall, whatever you want to say, because Vancouver would score three more after that. Simon Betcher here chipping it over Nico Giantsopoulos, who headed it out right to Betcher. That would make it 2-0. Nice goal here by Levante Johnson, the rookie, in the 88th minute, as uh, Vancouver gets also a uh, penalty kick goal from Julian Gressel. And the final was 4-1. So they will play the winner of the All-BC match later tonight between Pacific FC of Victoria and TSS Rovers of Burnaby. So Adam Hadwin and Nick Taylor are PGA Tour winners. And becoming good enough of a golfer to get on the PGA and win is extremely rare. There are a lot of great golfers out there. Not many of them make the PGA Tour. But what's more rare is when the two players come from the same golf club in Canada. That's how it is with Taylor and Hadwin, who were both schooled on the tight fairways and tricky greens at Abbotsford's Ledgeview Golf Club. It's fitting the slogan for Ledgeview Golf Course is where legends are born. More than half a century ago, this 100-acre property home to an 18-hole par 70 layout that barely stretches over 6,000 yards, was once farmland. And it truly is fertile ground, especially when it comes to producing world-class golfers. And we're quite proud of that in our, in our history. Back starting with Ray Stewart, a uh, Dunhill Cup winner on Team Canada. Um, James Lepp, obviously, with his NCAA uh, accomplishments. And obviously, more, more recently, our, uh, our team of uh, Nick Taylor and Adam Hadwin um, that were junior members here and continue to do us proud. That history almost went up in flames when Ledgeview's clubhouse burned to the ground in 2016. The core survived that and some serious construction upheaval due to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. But true to its nature, the course and its membership are as strong as ever. 
because what this course lacks for in distance and practice facilities, it more than makes up for with its undulating greens and tricky layout, which is Ledgeview's true DNA. I mean, I think it's a great junior course, right? It's short, it's demanding, so you learn how to golf. And that just, I think you're ahead of the game when you're entering those pro ranks because a lot of other players are, you know, hitting the range, fine-tuning their swings, but when you get out there, you gotta learn how to get the ball in the hole, and you learn how to do that out here at Ledgeview. Short game, I think, is so imperative here because of the way these greens are. How good did you get at your short game because you were out there playing, learning to hit from the different lines, but also learning to play the greens? Yeah, I would say my short game deteriorated after I kind of left here and focused maybe more on the mechanics and contact and stuff like that. When I was young, it was, it was throw a few balls here, a few balls there, games with your buddies, and see who could get it closest. I remember playing like golf curling where you have three balls and you're like, you score depending on how many balls you have closer than the next guy. And you, again, you would just learn how to hit the shots. It was nothing about fundamentals, just touch, feel, see it and visualize it and execute. And that's Ledgeview's yardage book, Secret to Success. It's one Ray Stewart read from, same for youngsters like James Lepp, Nick Taylor, Adam Hadwin, and now the future young junior golfers of tomorrow. This course, it just produces players, and so our goal is just to get as many kids out there playing golf. And we just have the widest net possible, get as many kids out there, and hopefully a couple of them can do what the past uh, champions have done. Jay Janor, Global Sports. And they're much happier in Toronto because the Maple Leafs have saved themselves. They beat Florida 2-1, so it's now 3-1 for Panthers in that series. Oh, few. No elimination. All right, thanks, <laughs> Squire. Thanks, Squire. Handmade movies that have a quality you can't quite put your finger on. Coming up next. Jordan Armstrong here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. Sophie, an arrest in a vicious attack on a restaurant worker in North Vancouver late last year at 11. What police are saying about the motive. Let's talk about adding insult to injury. The family of Urshad Iqbal, a 36-year-old man who disappeared April 29th, heartbroken to learn some of his missing posters were taken down and replaced with racist stickers. The story tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie. Oh dear. All right. Thanks for that, Jordan. Hard to believe that one. Okay, Squire's here, and we're going to wrap it up with, let's just all admit that the internet is wonderful in so many ways. It can also be terrible, but this is a great example of the wonder of the internet. Well, there's a lot of people who've done things on the internet. If there wasn't an internet, they probably wouldn't have been able to get those ideas out to the world because the mainstream would have said no. But the mainstream was wrong. And in this case, we're going to show you that going on the internet and doing what you want to do sometimes pays off. You might have seen this finger fighting video, but did you know who made it? Well, that's Josh, and that's me. We're two filmmakers who've never been paid to make a film, and then we decided to make a TikTok, and now millions of people have seen it. To be more precise, the initial video put together during the height of COVID, when face-to-face -face wasn't as dicey as hand-to-hand, -hand, was a super spreader event in a very safe but life-changing way. So our first ever TikTok actually managed to get 14 million views. It blew us out of the water. We didn't know, expect this to happen. No, we were just throwing spaghetti at the wall, really. Yeah, and yeah. seeing what sticks. And action. It stuck so well, they received funding to make a six-episode series for TikTok. We're filming a series called Five Fingers Fury, Idle Hands. It's about Handy, who's a hand that gets lost in the internet after they break through their phone. 
and they have to defeat the, the five idle the hands five that idle are spread hands. across the whole, the, the whole internet. The internet is the key word here because without it, young filmmakers like Daniel and Josh might never have their ideas taken seriously by studios or those who fund projects. You can have the craziest, stupidest, weirdest idea uh, that no one would say yes to, but then if people like it, it doesn't matter, right? Whereas if we just pitched the idea originally, like you said, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm curious, because you guys have to work with your hands, are you like hand models now? You don't want to put them near anything that will <gasps> cut them and or burn them or bruise them? Not, not really. What, what I, I will mean, say is that we've had to draw so many faces on our fingers yes. and then erase them with uh, rubbing alcohol yeah. um, that like now our fingernails are kind of There's like hangnails on falling it now. apart. Yeah, perfect. Are you more comfortable now? Yeah. Working with their fingers obviously has opened a door for these filmmakers to do bigger things down the road. I mean, sure, we're in a TikTok world right now, right? But we, yeah. do, we truly do feel this is a door opening for us as emerging filmmakers in Vancouver. And then also just uh, following the principle of do what is fun and to make, mm -hmm. not just what is fun to watch, but what's fun to make. And often that'll turn into what's fun to watch. They said the one thing they worried about was carpal tunnel, so they do stretches and stuff before they <laughs> oh, do a up. scene, yeah. yes. Gotta we're, do that. We were joking they need, they need finger stunt doubles. Do that enough. I don't think all their movies down the line are going to just star fingers. I think it'll <laughs> And a hand be. cream sponsor. That would be good, yeah. That would yeah. be good. It's gonna get bigger. Uh, Jazz hands to say goodbye. <laughs> Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for watching. <laughs> good night, all. <laughs>